As the August long weekend comes and goes, children and parents would normally be getting ready to go back to school. But we aren't in normal times. According to John Hopkins University, the novel coronavirus has infected more than 18 million people and killed more than 700,000. Canadian numbers sit around 120,000 infected and 9,000 dead in Canada, with new cases being counted every day. And in the middle of the pandemic, provinces are preparing to send children back to school. I'm Adam Toy, and this is Why. I have children in school, I have nieces and nephews in school, I have friends and family members who teach or work in schools, uh, and that I have a very strong interest not only in the safety and health of all Albertans, that's my job and I take that very seriously, uh, but I have many people who I personally uh, love and care about who will be in schools in the fall. New evidence will take us in new directions. Where we've been successful in British Columbia uh, is that we have deferred to those who know better than we do and, and British Columbians have responded very positively to that. Other jurisdictions have had a different approach to communicating how we respond as a community to this extraordinary challenge, an unprecedented challenge. And uh, going back to class in September will be an unprecedented challenge as well. Our actions today, um, you know, for friends watching in the province, our actions today will have a significant consequence on learning tomorrow. The fact that for four days, in this province, the people have been adhering to public health advice. We have under 100 cases of COVID is a positive sign, but we must stay vigilant because if we do so, we can ensure kids can go back to class each and every day in the fall and beyond. In-person classes across the country were put on hold in March and suddenly transitioned to online learning, a nationwide experiment that parents, teachers, students and administrators all took part in out of necessity. But as September approaches, so too does a new school year. And sending kids back to school during a pandemic has many parents and teachers worried, as COVID-19 has no cure, doesn't seem to be stopping and seems to be biased against the older members of our communities. Dr. Joan Robinson is a pediatric infectious disease physician at the Stollery Children's Hospital and uh, joins us. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Robinson. Oh, you're welcome. Dr. Robinson, the, the, the coronavirus pandemic, it's really been a part of our lives here in Alberta and in Canada really since March, really impacted our lives since March. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what we've learned about the disease and how it affects children specifically. So the only good thing about this virus so far is that children tend to have really mild disease. So if you look at the statistics across Canada, there have been only 132 people aged 0 to 19 admitted to hospital so far. Only 26 of those have gone to the intensive care unit. There's been only one death so far in a child between 0 and 10 years of age in Ontario, and even some of those children who ended up admitted to hospital could have been admitted for other reasons and happened to have COVID. So, so far, disease appears to be really very mild in children, and in fact, probably milder than influenza in, in the younger age groups. However, we have to keep in mind the fact that we 
kept the children locked in cages at home for the first few months. And if we had allowed children to pursue more normal activities, such as going to school, I think there's no doubt that there would have been more cases. Do we know if it, it, how severe things can get for children on a on an anecdotal basis? Have you heard of anything to that effect? Like I, I've, we've heard of of how there could be permanent lung damage in adults. Is there any evidence of that same sort of uh, thing with children? So far, there's minimal data on pediatric disease because there've been so few cases. So I think that we know that of the children that get admitted to hospital, probably at least three quarters of them are children who have some underlying chronic medical condition. So really, really rare for a previously healthy child to be admitted. In terms of sequelae of COVID, we know almost nothing about that yet because of the very small number of cases. Mm -hmm. So you describe chronic lung disease in adults, there are also adults who develop almost like a chronic fatigue syndrome after COVID and feel unwell for months after and not really clear yet what causes that in adults and how commonly that happens in children. Mm-hmm. Um, there has, however, um, if I understand correctly, there have been um, some uh, related inflammatory syndromes from this from COVID-19 what's the what's the body of of evidence say about about that and, and the connection of that inflammatory response in kids and uh and this novel coronavirus yeah so I'm glad that you brought that up so there is a multi-inflammatory syndrome well described in children somehow was not recognized in China but described in children in Italy, in the UK, in the US, and now we're starting to see some cases in Canada. And this is when children, several weeks after they had the COVID infection, so we think two to six weeks later, develop inflammation of multiple sites in their body and can present in, um, can actually present being quite sick, and most of these kids end up in the intensive care unit. But it does appear that most of them recover quite well. And in the case series from the United States, most of them actually went home a week after they were admitted. So even though they're quite sick and end up in the intensive care unit, typically because their heart is not pumping properly, they generally have full recovery, although there have been a few deaths described in other countries from this condition. Mm-hmm. Do we know why the, those children had that inflammatory response after uh, contracting the disease? So we really don't know why. There probably is some genetic predisposition, but nothing that we could predict. So it appears to be similar to another condition called Kawasaki disease, which has been recognized since the 1970s occurs most commonly in Asian children, but can occur in any ethnicity, and is mainly in preschool-aged children. The condition that occurs with COVID is in older children, so much more likely in school-aged children. And just like Kawasaki disease, not well understood, but it's almost as if these children have an inappropriate over-response to a particular virus. Now, if I understand correctly, there's been some some research lately, I believe it came out of South Korea, showing that, that children who are 10 years and older um, spread the disease as readily as, as adults. Is that, do I have that inf- information correctly? 
correct? Yes, you're quoting that study correctly, but the problem with that study is it wasn't really clear how they sorted out who the initial case was in the household because some of the cases had symptoms, some of them had no symptoms. So if you test everyone in the household, how do you sort out who first brought the virus into the household? So I'm not really sure that we can make um, make major decisions based on that one study. However, I think it would not be surprising if children are as contagious as adults. They are for every other virus. And I'm not sure it really changes things much to realize that children can spread the virus. So it sounds like you're of the opinion that we shouldn't treat children as a unique um, uh, group in terms of spread of this virus. So I think, as I mentioned, we need to assume that children can be the spreaders of it. We don't know whether they're more or less likely than adults to spread. It certainly doesn't look like they're more likely. They're probably either the same or less likely to spread. And I think that as children go back to school, we are going to see some spread within the schools. I think we have to accept the fact that that is going to happen. But it's looking like we flattened the curve to the point where this virus is going to be with us for a very long time. So if we get a vaccine in 2021 that works really well, then maybe we can end the whole pandemic. If we don't, this whole current situation could go on for two or even three years. I know people don't want to hear that, mm. but I think that is possible. And I do think that we can't keep children home from school for, for long periods of time, recognizing that we're really keeping them home mainly to protect older people, not to protect themselves. After the break... So online schooling only works if the teacher, the child, and the parent are all motivated, and the family has the technology, and the technology is actually working on that day. Welcome back to This Is Why. We're speaking with Dr. Joan Robinson, Division Director of Pediatric Infectious Disease at the University of Alberta and a Pediatric Infectious Disease Physician at Edmonton Stollery Children's Hospital. You mentioned school, and that's a topic that is hot, that's, that's a lot of people are speaking of right now if it's provinces that have already rolled out uh, their return to school plans and, or, or you know, cases uh, in the United States where students have already returned to school and there have been uh, documents uh, documented or documented um, spread of the disease within you know uh, elementary school populations I'm wondering if you can speak to why it's so important to get children into school in terms of their development uh, towards adulthood so online schooling only works if the teacher the child and the parent are all motivated and the family has the technology and the technology is actually working on that day. So I think it's really a small percentage of families in Canada, like way under half, who can actually make that happen, especially because more and more parents are going to end up back at work. Um, So it's kind of hard to imagine who's going to supervise all these children at home and get them to do all of this schoolwork. So I think that it is... It works remarkably well for some families, but for many families, it does not work. And I think that many children are just moving from one screen to another all day long. So from the television to the iPad 
to whatever and really are probably not learning a whole lot. And I think we also have to recognize that some children live in truly horrible environments where no one ever puts the needs of that child ahead of their own needs. And I think for these children not to get to go to school is really almost like child abuse. I know normally they're in that environment for two months over the summer, but the other 10 months of the year, they at least can get out of there and socialize with other children and have a teacher who, um, who can provide them with some support and some education. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, what about the, the, the socialization aspect of school? How vital is that for, for children to, to um, yeah, just as they grow up? So, I mean, I think people have different opinions about that. I think you don't have to go to school to be properly socialized. I think, again, if you grew up in a household where people really are, have put your interests very high on the list of priorities and you get to socialize lots with other children, I think you'll do completely fine. I think you don't have to go to school to be socialized if you come from a really wonderful household. And again, for the kids that live in a household where no one ever talks to them, I think it's really important that they get into an environment where they can socialize with other children and with adults. And I think that there's irreparable harm if, if we go for, you know, two years with children not going to school. Mm-hmm. For those children, not for the children who live in a really wonderful environment, I think they would be totally fine. Some of those kids are homeschooled anyway and seem to do remarkably well. Mm-hmm. There's, I'm wondering if you can speak to the calculus that, that, that teachers and school divisions and governments are having to do in order to, to meet the balance of addressing children's education needs. Like you said, not having kids on screens for the next two years, but also uh, keeping in mind the, the public health risk. Yeah, so I mean, I think we have no option but to try sending the children back to school and see what happens. Unfortunately, we still don't really know whether it's spread by droplets or spread by touching items that is the most important for this virus, and it would be very helpful if we knew that. But given that we don't know that, I think we just have to do our best to enforce hand washing when we can and try and have children socially distance when practical, but recognize that there are going to be some cases related to children going back to school. I think, however, that we all know the, the general public is not as willing as they were initially to all stay at home. And I think if we don't send children back to school, they're probably still going to be socializing with each other, and there are going to be cases related to spread um, from even children at home. So I think sending them back to school is a good plan, and I think we'll see how it all, it all um, rolls out. I realize that teachers are very worried about getting COVID themselves and then taking it home. I think it's the same issue that health care workers face. And I think that as long as one is careful and does your best to follow the rules, it's not all that likely that teachers are going to acquire COVID from children. There will be a few cases, but I don't think it will be a common occurrence. Mm -hmm. It's just like the common cold. So, I mean, teachers sometimes have caught colds from children in the class. Much more commonly, though, if you're a kindergarten teacher and you have more direct contact 
with children that have runny noses. I think now that we're all much more aware of the extreme importance of hand washing, I think it will be possible to not acquire COVID from children in the classroom. Um, part of the reason that this virus is so successful is because even people who are asymptomatic can spread it within the household. I don't know how commonly asymptomatic people will spread it within the school, for example. And I would think that after a few months of having the children back in school, we'll have more information about how commonly that happens. And of course, children who are sick are all going to end up having to stay home, and hopefully parents will be cooperative with that. How important will ventilation be in these classrooms in order to reduce the risk of spreading the virus? So again, we don't really know that for sure. It would be very useful if we did. However, we don't think this virus spreads through the air. We do, do not think you can get just from walking into a room where someone who had COVID has been unless they touch some object that you then touch. Um, we think that primarily spread um, through droplets would be by being in very close contact with someone, so certainly less than two meters away from someone who's, who's speaking and producing lots of saliva that somehow came into contact with you. Um, but we don't really know how important that all is. Mm. And I don't think that, you know, the ventilation system in the classroom probably has all that much to do with it. I think that a standard ventilation system is probably just fine. And again, we just have to accept the fact that some children are going to get COVID. That's just the way this is going to work. But I think that we have no other, no other acceptable option. Provincial governments have been providing guidance for their school divisions ahead of an anticipated September return to school. Some common threads in the plans are rearranging classrooms where possible to allow for physical distancing, enhanced hand washing protocols, and treating different age ranges like elementary versus high school students differently. But for Canada's most populous and therefore most infected provinces, the strategies differ. Parents in BC, Alberta, Ontario and Quebec are expressing their dissatisfaction with their government's plans. Tens of thousands of parents have signed petitions and open letters expressing their opposition to those plans and the desire to see changes that fall more in line with the public health guidelines that we've all been living under for months now. This Is Why is produced by Dave McIver and me, Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you soon.